from downtown Milwaukee, welcome to Money Talk with Bob Landis. Each week, professional advisors from Landis and Company Investments discuss the latest financial developments, offering timely insight and long-term perspective. This is Money Talk for February 3rd, 2023. Checking the calendar. Before the Bucks head to the West Coast for a week, they welcome Miami to the Forum tonight. Today is also the day back in 1959, the music died. Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper died in a plane crash near Clear Lake, Iowa. Well, it's February, and thank goodness the silly dry January thing is finally over. <laughs> and Punxsutawney Phil saw his shadow six more weeks of winter, and we're exactly two months away from the Brewers' home opener. Let's start with a confession. I don't have any White House classified documents in my house. <laughs> Apparently, I'm the only one. The latest is a 13-year-old Cleveland schoolgirl. She bought classified documents from 1984. She brought them to school for show and tell. The papers belonged to Ronald Reagan and were found in a hotel room used for debate prep. Pretty soon we'll all find classified documents in a box of Cracker Jack. A Japanese whale hunting company has started selling parts of whale in vending machines. Last month, the Tokyo-based firm started selling whale skin, frozen whale meat, and canned and cooked indiscriminate whale pieces. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the reason why we have a no-fish policy in the office microwave. You know what happens when it gets chilly in Florida? It starts raining iguanas. Well, it was chilly last week. The temp dropped below 50 when a Miami yoga instructor was holding class outdoors. And that's when a 25-pound iguana fell out of a tree and landed right on the instructor's face. He required some medical attention, but he's going to be all right. And by the way, iguana tastes like chicken. <laughs> and finally, our goofy headline comes from MSNBC of all places. Police arrest naked man with concealed weapon. Think about that for a minute. On the podcast today, we have Steve Giles, Paige Radke, George Santos. Oh, I'm sorry, that's Joel Drutang. <laughs> and wrapping up the week, here's Kyle Tedding. Well, thanks, Max. I think George could just as easily be on the podcast this week, given all his other responsibilities that seem to be uh, taken away day by day here. Uh, but a good week overall for markets. The Nasdaq up 3.3%, closing at 12,007. The S&P 500 up 1.6% this week, closing at 41.36. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average down two-tenths of a percent this week. Down 128 points today, just 52 for the week, closing at 33.926 for the year. The Dow lagging the broader measures, still up 2.3%, 2.4 including dividends. The S&P up 7.9% including dividends. And the NASDAQ a whopping 14.8% positive to start the year. Uh, quick look at the week. The other thing worth pointing out, I think, the yield on the benchmark treasury, uh, the 10-year U.S. Treasury, largely unchanged for the week, finishing at 3.53 after starting at 3.52, despite the fact that the Fed took action on the overnight rate this week. Um, you know, not a, a lot of sign that the market believes that longer term rates need to remain this high. And Paige, maybe that's a place to start. Um, you know, this big disparity between the Fed continuing the journey on hiking the overnight rate up a quarter of a point this week, uh, and yet 
not really signs that longer-term yields are reflecting any kind of optimism that rates need to stay high for long here. Yeah, and you know, obviously the Fed has been a big focus of conversation, um, more so in recent years. But as they continue to raise interest rates, you know, we all know this and we all say this, but the age-old adage, "Don't fight the Fed." Um, and unfortunately, it does seem to feel that markets are fighting the Fed a little bit here, um, whether it's because they don't believe what the Fed is saying um, or they think the Fed is wrong. It's hard to say. Um, but I'm of the opinion that when the Federal Reserve says they're going to do something, assume that they're going to. Um, and really, you know, right now, when I look at broader economic conditions, there's a couple of things that we should keep in mind where rather than betting on what the Fed is going to do, I think it's important to start thinking about what are we going to see up until the Fed actually decides to pivot. Um, and so as long as we have you know, pretty good employment figures, as long as we have you know, loan rates being as high as they are, they're having the impact that they're looking to have. Um, and so really, when we're looking forward, maybe they're not going to stay this high for this long, but they're certainly not going to be going back down to those zero levels anytime soon. We worked so hard to get out of that zero for a long period of interest rate hikes. We kept asking, what is a normal level and what do we want to get to? And truth be told, well, it might be good for stock investors to have those lower rates, specifically for bond investors and maybe even more importantly, diversification within your portfolio. We want interest rates to stay at at least somewhat elevated levels, um, because really, when we look at a year like 2022 and we scratch our heads and say, why did bonds and stocks move in the same direction? It was largely because of the pace that the Fed increased interest rates. But even over the last 10 years, I mean, traditionally, you're going to see a different relationship, an inverse relationship between stocks and bonds. When rates are really low, that breaks down. And so right now, I'm betting on higher for longer, maybe a little bit lower than where we are right now. Um, and I'd rather be a bit more conservative with that and be wrong um, than be a bit too optimistic and be wrong at this point in time. Well, and Steve, we look at kind of all these various sources of prediction for where rates are heading, whether it's the Chicago Mercantiles Exchange FedWatch tool, whether it's, you know, a number of kind of prognosticators that are out there talking about the Fed. And the reality is, you know, as, as Paige mentions, the long-term direction, the ultimate end rate may be less important to us as investors than kind of the role that bonds overall play in a balanced portfolio. And so, um, you know, maybe a reminder, Steve, for clients that bonds now, as a result of last year, maybe look a little more attractive, not less. Yeah, I would absolutely agree, Kyle. And for those investors who are um, remembering back to those days when you could get 6 7% on a savings account or a CD at the bank, um, seeing 4 or 5% is, is probably... Uh, a nice reminder that fixed income does play a role in a balanced portfolio. And and I think to Paige's point, because rates were so low, we did have a period of, I think, extreme tailwinds for the markets. Uh, stocks were the only game in town. If you could get a better dividend on a stock than you could interest in fixed income at the bank, of course, people that had money they didn't need tomorrow would invest in stocks. And so maybe a lot of the stock return that we saw in the last decade, well, really since the global financial crisis, was a bit inflated. And by having 
fixed income return to levels of interest that provide an alternative to stocks, you now have the ability to create a balanced portfolio that truly is balanced. Stocks are going to reward those investors longer term that are willing to put up with the day-to-day fluctuation that comes with owning a stock. You're going to get rewarded with 7, 8, 9% annualized over time. Uh, for those investors that don't want to put up with that kind of volatility on a daily basis, they ratchet it down a little bit in terms of their risk, and, and they're still rewarded with hey, maybe 4 or 5% on some idle money that's sitting at the bank or in some kind of fixed income product. Fixed income shouldn't be at zero. Uh, it, it's really difficult to have um, the ability to build a balanced portfolio when there's such a disparity between those asset classes. You know, I think you look at what returns have looked like the last five years, 10 years, a balanced portfolio over the last five or 10 6% or better for a lot of clients in terms of annualized returns. And it came, as you say, from the stock piece because the aggregate bond index over the last five years gave us less than 1% a year. Um, and the reverse of that is that stocks provided a lot more of the return. And so to that end, the 55, 45, or 60, 40 that we talked about for years became 70, 30 for a lot of people. It became a portfolio that was allowed to be more aggressive because it was worth the little bit of additional risk to get the lot of extra return that came from stocks. And, um, you know, I think, honestly, the math has changed. Um, The risks probably haven't changed all that much, right? The volatility in stocks doesn't look any different the next 10 than it did the last 10. Bonds, yeah, okay, it's a similar conversation, but the return profile has shifted pretty drastically. And so I think you know, from an allocation perspective, that should influence what we do. And I think com- uh, your, your comments, Steve, are well received. The ultimate goal here is for investors, how do we figure out how to get them the return they need within an appropriate level of risk? And some of that is taking into account where the opportunities are. Well, and, and, and consider also all of those investors who were used to uh, retirement uh, withdrawals from their IRAs in the 4 to 5% range, Right, the required minimum distributions uh, that the IRS uh, obviously forced upon everybody when they hit, well, at the time, 70 and a half. Uh, now that is age 73, but you could achieve a required minimum distribution from your IRA portfolio, Kyle, just by having money in fixed income because yields were so high on bonds. Uh, and we've come through a period now where the only way to achieve a required minimum distribution and see your portfolio's principal continue to appreciate is to lean more into stocks. And for retirees in their 70s, that's asking a lot from a volatility standpoint. So to get to this point where now bonds become a more viable option, we're returning to a more normal um, asset allocation model where Fixed income is going to provide a little bit uh, uh, more than just having money sitting in a tin can in the backyard, which is really what interest has been for the last 10 years. Uh, You now have the ability to garner some interest, some income from your fixed income without the kind of risk and volatility that comes with owning stocks. Uh, Stocks are going to provide you with appreciation longer term. and, And we're back to that whole efficient frontier, modern portfolio theory model of a 60 40 portfolio. I'm so sick and tired of reading all those articles that talk about the 60 40 model is dead. It's not dead. 
for those investors that have been paying attention, last year was the worst year for a 60-40 portfolio in 90 years. Both stocks and bonds lost money, but it had only happened four other times in the history of a 60-40 portfolio uh, being kept track. 1931, uh, during World War II, 1969, when we had the recession, uh, 2000. Uh, uh, 18, incidentally, and then also just this last year. So only five times in 90 years. Statistically, that's a very, very low chance of it happening again. 60-40 is not dead, uh, and it's something that I think investors need to pay more attention to moving forward. You know, I think those those comments are spot on with kind of the way we're talking to clients right now. The, the one challenge that I keep hearing is, well, the Fed's going to cause a recession, and so we, we got to rethink this whole thing. Of course, Joel, we got news today on the labor market, maybe the most important thing we watch in terms of indications of recession, far, far stronger than what anybody could have imagined today in terms of job, job gains. Right, Kyle, the, the employers added 517,000 jobs. In, in January, and that's on top of 71,000 jobs that weren't counted in Feb in uh, December and, and November. So it's, it's a lot of a lot of jobs that were added that, as you said, weren't expected. Now, as we always say, don't put too much into one month's report. Um, there are some things that could have been going on there that exaggerated the number of, of jobs added. Um, and, and, and actually, as, as far as an economic indicator, I'm starting to wonder, um, I, I think it's getting confusing for the Fed because you can look at the economy on one hand and you can look at labor as part of the economy, but demographics is also at play there. So, you know, for months we're watching all sorts of economic data that are showing um, that the economy is slowing, which is what the Fed is trying to achieve by by raising interest rates. We're not seeing a whole lot of change with the jobs numbers. And part of that isn't so much economics, I think. It's demographics. Um, you know, we we had uh, in, the, in the report today, we had uh, unemployment rate go down to 3.4%, which is the lowest since May of 1969. I mean, there are just some eye-opening numbers in this report. But what I'm also seeing are, are signs of, of <clears throat> excuse me, this this demand and supply crunch that's being caused by demographics. Where <clears throat> we had uh, numbers earlier this week on job openings from employers, they they went up. They went up to 11 million. The 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 gap between the number of job openings and the number of people available to fill those jobs. Um, is the greatest it's ever been in you know 20 years or so that they've been measuring it. So that's significant, I think. Um, so they're they're having openings and they're not letting people go because we're seeing the the numbers from the unemployment insurance claims and those have been down for eight weeks in a row and they're 48 percent below the, the all-time uh, average. So that's telling you that employers aren't just letting people go. I actually saw a term today. One economist pointed out um, that. She suspected that um, employers were hoarding jobs, that they weren't letting people go in January as they usually do from seasonal jobs because they're so afraid that if they let somebody go and they need them later on, they're not going to be able to hire them. We saw numbers today on, um, on wages, which is a, a very real concern for the Fed because they're concerned that if wages keep going up, that that's just going to fuel more inflation. Um, and we've been seeing those wages go down 
month to month. Um, but we're also we also see, saw in today's report that um, even though wages were going down a little from the, the month before, the number of hours in a work week went up. The number of hours in overtime went up. And that's just like adding more people, but it's hanging on to the people that you have and just paying them more money. And, of course, the... The chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, said earlier in the week that the disinflation process has started, a reminder that just because the rate of growth is slowing doesn't mean that the numbers themselves are going down. It just means the rate's going down. And that's what we saw, you know, as you point out on the wage numbers, uh, a year-over-year gain in January slower than what we had seen in December. And that's the key to getting inflation under control. It's not one big step. It's a lot of little steps along the way. And so I think an encouraging sign that wages are reflecting the same thing we're seeing in consumer prices uh, and other measures of inflation, that, yeah, it isn't overnight that we're back to that 2% target, but that we continue on that path towards 2 And And back to Paige's point of not fighting the Fed, I think that people who are trying to outthink the Fed or, or try to be one step ahead of the Fed might be losing sight of the fact that, you know, Jerome Powell months ago said that we should be expecting some pain to come from these higher interest rates. And as far as the labor situation, I'm not sure we're necessarily seeing that yet. And a big week more broadly for economic news, information from the ISM on both manufacturing and services sectors. There'd been a bit of a trend with the ISM numbers toward contraction, towards signs that the economy was shrinking, not growing. A little bit of a flip in January on the uh, services side, but the the manufacturing side still showing some weakness. Right, yeah, second month in a row that the the Institute for Supply Management found that that manufacturing was actually contracting, so it's actually sort of in a in a recession. Um, but they're still seeing improvements in um, supply management, which is which is important and one of the the factors that caused the high inflation that we saw earlier. Um, but the, And there again, in their surveys with purchasing managers and supply managers, the ISM found that um, there was a concern about employment, that, that some places were holding on to workers even though they didn't have all of the work for them just because they knew that they expect things to start picking up again. And when that happened, they didn't want to have to scramble for workers. And an interesting kind of overlap between the employment numbers and the ISM numbers, you saw the largest number of job additions come on the services side, which is what you would expect in a month in which services seem to be doing better than manufacturing. The Yeah, okay, restaurant workers, hotel workers, and the like, that's the area of the economy that seems to be growing the quickest right now. And I think it's reflective of an economy that continues to find its footing after what was essentially an entire shutdown of the services sector two years ago. And so I think encouraged by those those very facts, if only that, you know, it's maybe one more month of data. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, today's report on jobs showed that one out of every four jobs added in January was from leisure and hospitality. And they're still, what, 2.9 percent, um, you know, hundreds of thousands, half a million jobs behind where they were before the pandemic. Paige, I think we can't dismiss how strong of a return we've seen to start the year. There's no shortage of data points out there from research institutes talking about how when you have a strong January, it usually speaks well for the year. And um, maybe a, a reminder that one of the reasons why years in which January is strong tend to be strong is because you already have a nice big cushion in case the rest of the year seems to be pretty weak. 
Um, but it's hard to dismiss some of the positives that are out there right now, at least from a, a, a return perspective. Yeah, I mean, we, we had a great January. There's no doubt about it. We saw positive returns on the bond side. We saw positive returns on the stock side. Um, and really right now, when you look at a trailing one-year re- performance report in a balanced portfolio, where something may have been down you know, 14% through 2022, you drop off January of last year and you pick up January of this year, and now suddenly those losses are cut in half. So there's still a negative number, but I think it really points to just how important the time frame that you're looking at can be on your returns. Um, so I try my best not to put too much stock in one month um, of what's going on. And I know traditionally, um, 75% of the time, the gains that the market has in January continue on through the rest of the year. Um, and I hate to say that it's different this time, um, but that said, it does feel a little bit different this time. And and really, it just comes down to what drove the market down last year. Last year, the conversation was entirely surrounding interest rates and inflation and what the Fed was going to do. Um, And so when you look at the stock market, particularly, pretty much all of the downward trajectory that we saw was valuation based. It was accounting for the fact and using the time value of money calculation to readjust your expectations because of those higher rates. And, you know, they oftentimes when you talk about the bear market, that was sort of the first paw of the bear market. And now going into this year, I, I have some concerns about that second paw hitting. And it's primarily as it pertains to earnings. Um, So now when we say, okay, stocks are fairly valued or undervalued, it's based off of current current earnings estimates, which have continued to come down. Um, And so really, I think the focus this year is going to be less about those broader macroeconomic trends that we saw last year. And there's going to be a lot more company-specific focus. How well are they handling this inflation? How are they doing on on a free cash flow measurement? Um, And so rather than looking at sort of the price earnings, I'm focusing a little bit more on things like book value and cash flow. And even there, things look pretty cheap right now. So I'm feeling cautiously optimistic about the year ahead. Um, But again, I think the focus is going to continue to be on earnings and corporate management is going to become a bigger piece of the conversation. And while I like to think that corporations are being run well and effectively, um, we're already starting to see signs that, you know, the next couple quarters of earnings estimates are coming in line below expectations. And so if we get some positive surprise, this rally could continue. But if things are looking a little too rosy and even those earnings estimates are a little too high, um, we still may see a bumpy road ahead. And again, everyone's going to continue to hang on what the Fed says and how that's going to play out into things more broadly. Well, I think the conversation used to be that those value-oriented businesses were the ones that tended to fare a little better. I think the conversation's changed a little especially in this environment for a couple of important reasons, it's now more about quality, right? It's more about those businesses that um, you can kind of count on what the earnings are going to look like. That's not strictly value businesses anymore. It's, you know, some of the more software-driven, high-margin businesses, and most importantly, businesses that don't have a large amount of leverage. Because a reminder, you wanted to borrow a year or 18 months ago, you could borrow at pretty cheap rates. Um, and if you're a corporation looking to spend, you don't have a lot of cash, makes all the sense in the world to borrow at one, two, two and a half percent for the next three to five years. 
But if you've got some of those bonds coming due now and you've got to look at, okay, what's it going to cost to refinance? Well, all of a sudden, not only are you facing the prospects of, well, my earnings aren't going to be as great as I thought they were going to be, but now it's also two or three times more expensive to finance. Well, okay, I'm, I'm a little more concerned about what those businesses look like. And so, you know, something we've focused on pretty pretty tightly here to start the year is where can we find higher quality businesses? One, investment options are available to us that might focus a little more on low leverage, high consistency of earnings companies. And so from my perspective, the stocks out of the portfolio, it doesn't look strictly more value the way maybe we used to lean into that in this type of environment and this phase of the business cycle. It's more about quality overall. Exactly. And, and especially on the valuation front, I mean, when you think about growth and value, there's some main valuation metrics that are going to be looked at, and it is going to be price earnings, price to free cash flow, price to debt, um, price to book value. So it's there's not just one valuation metric that kind of covers all of those bases. And so, you know, looking down the line, traditionally, the value companies are the, going to be the ones that have lower valuation metrics. Um, but there are some larger companies out there that are more growth oriented, where when you look at their, say, price to book ratio, so, you know, for those that don't know, that's essentially what is the price your stock is trading at relative to the value of the assets on your balance sheet. And, you know, while you might look at a big growth company and say, okay, it's still expensive, so therefore it's a growth name. If you take that out of the broader market and compare it to its five-year average or 10-year average, you are seeing signs of good, strong companies, even within that growth side, just like you can fall into a value trap um, and have companies that have what looks like attractive valuation metrics, but it's for a reason um, rather than, and it should be that cheap because there's some issue with the business. So again, grow, it's not all about growth and value. It's about good quality businesses versus those that are not going to be able to sustain that same level of growth with this new economic environment. And maybe to put a little bow on the conversation today, because I think what you and I were just talking about pairs nicely with what Steve was hitting on earlier, which is, you know, there are opportunities out there now in a way that we haven't seen for the better part of the last decade. Um, it isn't strictly relying on those high-octane growth stocks the way we used to. Yeah, maybe the returns are a little more typical as we look forward in those stocks, but you know, you don't have to count on 10 or 12% anymore from your stocks. And so I think as we talk about what the next few months or the next few quarters look like, yeah, there's plenty of risks out there. There always are. There's plenty of reasons to be concerned. There always are. As we look at, okay, what's the outlook for three-year, five-year, 10-year, the time frames in which we start to really get an understanding for here's what the opportunity set is. I'm more excited than I've been in a long time. I think I'm more... Uh, more optimistic, throwing in that caution on the earlier part of that, but more optimistic about what the future looks like because we don't have to take the same level of risk we used to to get there. So maybe with that, thank you all for listening. We enjoy doing the program, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to Money Talk with Bob Landis. If you have a financial question you want answered on next week's show, email it to moneytalk@landis.com. To keep informed throughout the week, visit our Money Talk page at landis.com.